Hello, and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 72, The Slow and Steady Step, part 1. Before we get started this week, a few side notes. First, you may remember that back in January I talked a bit about advertising on the show. Well, finally, after many months of trying to find an advertising program that worked for me and wouldn't be too intrusive on the show, I'm proud to announce that this week's episode is brought to you by Audible. For listeners of the show, Audible is offering a free 30-day free trial membership, complete with a credit for a free audiobook of your choice. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your offer. Audible has over 150,000 titles to choose from, all compatible with iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player of choice. Those titles, by the way, don't just cover audiobooks. They've also got some great old radio shows, as well as titles from the Great Courses series, recordings of lectures given by some of the preeminent minds living today. If you're stuck on what to try this week, I'm going to offer a recommendation in keeping with our theme. Shogun by James Clavell. Is it totally accurate? No. Is it a bit ridiculous or melodramatic at points? Absolutely. But for all that, it's a fun read, it's accurate in a big picture sense, silly romance aside, and at 1,200 pages in the original, it's a good value. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com japan. Again, that's audibletrial.com japan. Second, a few of you have contacted me about supporting the show directly. I honestly never expected anyone to offer money, and I'm very moved by your generosity. So if you're interested in supporting the show, I've put together a page for the show on a crowdfunding service called Patreon. Patreon is unique because it gives a slightly different funding model than other services like PayPal. Donations can be in an ongoing form, better for supporting long-term projects like this podcast. So, thank you very much to those of you who offered your support. If the spirit so moves you, check out patreon.com slash historyofjapan. I want to stress that monetary support is not a precondition to keeping the show going. I'm not going anywhere, no matter what. That said, it certainly is appreciated, so to those of you offering, again, thank you very much. Well, that's enough of me talking about things that aren't history. Let's get started. This week, we're going to cover the founder of the last great shogunate, the man who would carry Japanese feudalism into its final form. When he was born, it was unlikely that anyone around him saw greatness in his future. When he died, he was master of one of the richest realms in the world, and his enemies had been smashed before him. Tokugawa Ieyasu was born, surprisingly enough, not as Tokugawa Ieyasu. His ancestral family was called the Matsudaira, and he himself was born under the name Takechio. When he came of age at the age of 16, he changed his personal name to Motoyasu. The full name change to Tokugawa Ieyasu would not come until much later. This is actually fairly common in East Asian societies. As a person rises in rank, their name is changed to reflect their changing social status. To avoid confusion, though, I'm just going to consistently use the name Tokugawa Ieyasu here. His family, the Matsudaira, had the deep misfortune to be sandwiched between two fairly powerful clans, the Oda and the Imagawa. The Matsudaira home province of Mikawa was often a battleground for these two rival families. 
When Ieyasu was born on January 31st, 1543, his family was bitterly divided. Everyone in the clan was aware that the Matsudaira alone could not stand up to both of their neighbors, but the family could not agree on which of the two clans to throw their lot in with. Ieyasu's father, Hirotada, wanted to throw in his lot with the Imagawa. Much of the rest of the family wanted to throw in with the Oda clan. Ieyasu, during his young life, became a sort of totem to reinforce the shifting alliances. He was used as a hostage to cement alliance ties forged by his father. This is actually fairly common in a lot of feudal societies, both in Europe and Japan. Children of a lord were used as hostages to ensure that the family kept their word. If they didn't, the kids would be the one to pay the price. Ieyasu was his father's firstborn son and heir, making him a very useful hostage. If you're a fan of Game of Thrones, think of him as a less whiny, though arguably equally self-absorbed, Theon Greyjoy. He got passed around quite a bit in his early years. First, he was promised to the Imagawa to cement an alliance against the Oda, then captured by the Oda, and then recaptured by the Imagawa, with both the Imagawa and the Oda realizing that possessing Ieyasu might well be the key to getting the Matsudaira on their side. His father, Hirotada, was surprisingly blasé about the danger this put his son in. After the Oda captured young Ieyasu, Hirotada even suggested that he'd rather see his son executed than switch sides and break his alliance with the Imagawa. Some defenders of Hirotada suggest this was simply because he knew the Oda were bluffing and would never risk permanently alienating him by executing Ieyasu. That's a bit of a stretch, though, and it's equally likely that his father knew he could replace his son more easily than he could replace his entire army. When is reminded of the Italian Duchess Caterina Zvorza, who responded to the men who took her own children hostage by flashing her genitals at the hostage-takers and saying something along the lines of, I have the tools to make more. Regardless, the experience was a formative one for young Ieyasu, and provided him with an education in the dangers of power politics. After being recaptured by the Imagawa, Ieyasu would spend the rest of his childhood as their hostage. By holding him, the daimyo of the Imagawa clan, Imagawa Yoshimoto, was able to essentially dictate terms to the Matsudaira and force them ever more tightly under his thumb. The name Ieyasu took after coming of age, Motoyasu, even came from Yoshimoto. The Moto in both names is the same character. After coming of age in 1556, Ieyasu was sent home to his family to serve as a loyal ally of the Imagawa. He did exactly that. Four years later, when another war broke out between the Oda and Imagawa, he dutifully sided with his former captors and marched off to battle. He proved to be a very able general, mostly by virtue of superior cunning. In one noteworthy engagement, he tricked an Oda army besieging a castle into abandoning the siege by arranging for them to receive false reports of an enemy army coming from the opposite direction. While the besiegers ran off to fight this new threat, Ieyasu's forces snuck in and linked up with the defenders, bringing reinforcements and fresh supplies. Early in the war, it seemed that the Imagawa were going to win, but all that changed when the young lord of the Oda clan, Oda Nobunaga, launched a brilliant ambush and wiped out most of the Imagawa army, even killing Imagawa Yoshimoto, the man who had helped give Ieyasu his first adult name. Ieyasu, however, was not predisposed to be sentimental about these kind of things. 
Being a hostage for most of his life likely burned that out of him pretty quick. Immediately, he went to the Oda, who now looked to be winning the war, and offered to jump ship in exchange for his life being spared. Nobunaga said yes, and Ieyasu turned his armies on his former friends and allies. By 1561, the Imagawa were virtually destroyed. Ieyasu then closed the circle by sending his own son, Matsudaira Nobuyasu, to Oda Nobunaga to act as a hostage for his own good behavior. From this point on, Ieyasu was basically Nobunaga's man. He would spend the remainder of the 1560s reorganizing his own domains, for example by purging them of Jodo Shinshu radicals, like we talked about during the episodes in the Ikoiki, and preparing his forces for further military action. A quick recap from the Ikoiki episodes, if it's been a while since you've listened to them. Ieyasu wanted to expand his power, but couldn't do so by expanding his frontiers. Nobunaga would not allow it, lest Ieyasu become powerful enough to challenge him. Instead, Ieyasu concentrated on centralizing his authority inside his own domains. He stepped on a lot of toes to make that happen, and as a result in 1563, a revolt by some of his samurai, as well as by local Jodo Shinshu Buddhist groups, broke out against him. Ieyasu, however, was able to isolate the revolters from each other and pick them off individually over the course of a year. He then exiled or executed the samurai who rebelled against him. As for the Jodo Shinshu rebels, the provincial history records, quote, Ieyasu had promised to let them be as they were originally, then said, Originally they, the temples in this case, were fields, so let them be fields as originally. So they were destroyed, and the priests fled, scattered. Now the unchallenged master of Mikawa, Ieyasu then turned his attention to two other matters. The first was solidifying his stature on the larger stage of Japan, the second expanding his influence with Nobunaga. Plan number one began in 1566, when Ieyasu petitioned Oda Nobunaga for the right to change his name to the more regal-sounding Tokugawa Ieyasu. Tokugawa meaning river of virtue, Ieyasu meaning serene household. Ieyasu also began another project at this point, faking a genealogical tree designed to make his ancestry seem more glamorous than it actually was. Specifically, he claimed in his new family tree to be descended from the Minamoto clan, the first shoguns of Japan. He claimed that descent by way of the Nita clan, an offshoot of the original Minamoto. The Nitto were also the family of Nita Yoshisada, the old rival of Ashikaga Takauji. Thus, this family tree had two things going for it. It tied Ieyasu both to the glory of the first shoguns and to the heroism of the family that had resisted that vile traitor, Ashikaga Takauji. Of course, this family tree is so convenient that it's almost certainly made up. There's no good evidence for what the family background of the Matsudaira was prior to the 1400s. Still, it reveals one very important piece of information about Ieyasu. Since a shogun had to be descended from the Minamoto clan, it establishes the possibility that as early as the 1560s, Ieyasu had his eyes on that prize. Of course, always one to keep his options open, Ieyasu also drew up a separate family tree establishing his descent from the Fujiwara family of aristocratic nobles in Kyoto just in case he had to find some other way to the top. Meanwhile, Ieyasu expanded his influence with Nobunaga by continuing the war against the Imagawa. 
While the Imagawa had been badly beaten by 1561, at this point they are still around. There are still a few stragglers here and there. Ieyasu was going to finish them off permanently. He signed an agreement with another clan, the Takeda, led by the great warlord Takeda Shingen, to divide the Imagawa lands between them, finally crushing the family that had held him hostage in 1570. Nobunaga was now convinced of Ieyasu's loyalty and actually let him keep the lands he conquered as a result. The decade of the 1570s were consumed by the threat of the Takeda, now Ieyasu's neighbors. After working together to crush the Imagawa, the two partners turned on each other, fighting a series of on-again, off-again skirmishes. They also fought a few larger campaigns. During one of them, Ieyasu almost lost everything. Takeda Shingen thoroughly beat him in the 1573 Battle of Mikatagahara, and Ieyasu barely escaped with his life. Shingen, however, died the next year, and his son Katsuyori was not up to the task of beating Ieyasu. Some suggest that Ieyasu deliberately provoked a war with the Takeda, by, among other things, forming an alliance with the Uesugi, old rivals of the Takeda family, but we can't really be sure one way or the other. Ieyasu called upon his ally Nobunaga for help at several points throughout the war against the Takeda, and while that help was often forthcoming, Nobunaga, for example, dealt a devastating defeat to the Takeda in the 1575 Battle of Nagashino, it was not always fast enough for Ieyasu. Indeed, at one point, Ieyasu was near to being defeated by the Takeda and requested reinforcements from the Oda. When Nobunaga delayed in sending them, Ieyasu threatened to switch sides on him and join with the Takeda to attack Oda Nobunaga if help was not sent his way. Surprisingly, threatening one of the most powerful and violent men in the country seems to have worked out for Tokugawa. Nobunaga respected this bit of power politicking and sent the help. This suggests that Ieyasu had become powerful enough that were he to betray Nobunaga, he could be a serious threat, thus that betrayal had to be prevented at all costs. This in turn suggests that Nobunaga, given the chance, would demonstrate his usual brand of ruthless efficiency and bump off his troublesome new retainer at the first opportunity. We can't really be sure how that would have turned out, though. Meanwhile, in 1580, the Takeda, run down by decades of war against two very powerful clans, finally fell apart. Nobunaga took their central home base of Kai province, but rewarded Ieyasu with the rest of the territory which had formerly been the Imagawas that the Takeda had split with him back in 1570. Still, Nobunaga was not willing to let Ieyasu's behavior slide totally. In fact, revenge for Ieyasu's impertinence, both in starting the war with the Takeda and in threatening to betray him, are generally cited as the rationale for one of the more tragic events of Ieyasu's early life. Though it's impossible to be sure exactly why Nobunaga did what he's about to do. In fact, get used to hearing that. One of the things about these very Machiavellian schemes is that no one really keeps a record of what's motivating them, making it very difficult to be sure exactly what is the cause behind everything. Anyway, the specific scandal took place in 1579. Oda Nobunaga presented his assembled vassals and allies proof that Tokugawa Nobuyasu, Ieyasu's son and heir, had been conspiring with the Takeda to betray them all. Nobuyasu, by the way, was actually named after Nobunaga. The Nobu in his name came from Nobunaga's, the Yasu from Ieyasu's. 
Nobunaga was in essence condemning a person who represented the physical incarnation of his relationship with Ieyasu. Now, exactly how this proof was obtained was never revealed, and it seems unlikely at any rate that a child of Ieyasu's would be dumb enough to risk his neck by scheming with a foe who by this point was already only one year from falling apart. Still, Ieyasu could not really call his boss a liar. That left two options. Ieyasu could tell Nobunaga to go to hell, which would almost certainly mean fighting a war against him that Ieyasu probably couldn't win. Or he could go along and order his son and heir to commit suicide, the punishment for this kind of betrayal. Ieyasu was never a sentimentalist where his own power was concerned. To preserve his own influence, he ordered his firstborn son to kill himself. Now, very often in history, the phrase, so-and-so would do anything for power, gets thrown around, but here is a man who, it would seem, was really willing to do anything to hold on to his power. At this point, a break between Ieyasu and Nobunaga looked likely, between Ieyasu's growing power and the hatred and mistrust fostered by the death of Nobuyasu, it seemed likely there would soon be some kind of conflict between the two. That break, however, would never have a chance to come. In 1582, Nobunaga would be assassinated by another one of his generals, Akechi Mitsuhide. What motivated Mitsuhide was unclear. The most common explanation was that he feared that a recent failure would cause Nobunaga to strip him of his authority and titles. Some more conspiracy-minded people out there have suggested that Ieyasu actually put Mitsuhide up to it. They point out that Ieyasu had recently been invited to tour Nobunaga's home base in Kansai, and this could have been a chance to put Ieyasu into Nobunaga's power before imprisoning and executing him. Or at least that Ieyasu could have seen it that way and decided to strike first. Personally, I think that's a bit of a stretch. While it's entirely possible that Nobunaga was planning to execute Ieyasu, it certainly would have been par for the course, Ieyasu's reaction on Nobunaga's death appears to have been one of genuine surprise. If Ieyasu had orchestrated the whole thing, it would have been more in keeping with his character to have a plan to slip right into the power vacuum after the fact. Instead, when news of Nobunaga's death came, Ieyasu lacked the thing he needed most to take advantage of the situation. An army nearby, big enough to march on Kyoto, seize the capital, and destroy Mitsuhide, avenging Nobunaga. So instead, he improvised and did what most people do when confronted with a chaotic and dangerous situation. He grabbed anything he could and got the hell out of Dodge. In this case, anything he could meant two more former Takeda provinces, Kai and Shinano if you're curious. He simply used the confusion to march right in and claim them. Meanwhile, central Japan was dissolving into chaos. It seemed that Mitsuhide had no real idea of what to do after killing Nobunaga, and was picked off almost immediately by an alliance of Nobunaga's third son, Oda Nobutaka, and one of his most prominent generals, Hashiba Hideyoshi. Hideyoshi was thus able to smoothly step into a leadership position, both symbolically, after all he had avenged Nobunaga, and practically, since he now had a large army backing his control of the politically influential and economically wealthy Kansai region. Hideyoshi then went along consolidating his new position. First, he was able to convince what was left of the Oda clan to appoint Nobunaga's grandson, Oda Hidenobu, 
as the new head of the Oda clan. His reasoning was that Hidenobu was in the direct line of succession. He was the eldest son of Nobunaga's eldest son Nobutada, who had also been killed by Akechi Mitsuhide. In fact, Hideyoshi likely backed Hidenobu because he felt Hidenobu was young enough to be influenced or guided into supporting correct policy, which is to say the policies that Hideyoshi wanted. Nobunaga's surviving sons, Nobukatsu and Nobutaka, meanwhile, were too old to be influenced in quite the same way, and had the potential to show unfortunate independent streaks. So basically, if you're having a hard time following this because of all the Nobus involved, the simple version is that Hideyoshi arranged for an easily manipulable puppet ruler to be placed in charge of the Oda clan. Second, when one of Nobunaga's former retainers, a general named Shibata Katsuie, showed an unwillingness to follow Hideyoshi and challenged his leadership, Hideyoshi led an army into his territory and destroyed Shibata's forces. Shibata, defeated, set fire to his castle base and then killed himself. Shibata, by the way, had challenged Hideyoshi by backing Nobunaga's third son, Nobutaka. Nobutaka also killed himself after Shibata's defeat. Actually, if you remember our episode on Minamoto no Yoritomo, he did so at the same spot where Yoritomo's father, Yoshitomo, had died. Thus, another potential challenge to Hideyoshi was removed at the same time. In all of this, Ieyasu remained very carefully neutral. He did not break openly with Hideyoshi, but he did not enthusiastically support him either. Ever the careful planner, Ieyasu was looking for the opportunity to make a move. He found it in 1584. Nobunaga's second and oldest surviving son, Nobukatsu, broke openly with Hideyoshi, and Ieyasu was able to ally with him and challenge Hideyoshi on the grounds of putting Nobunaga's true heir into power. Hideyoshi did the obvious thing, and led an army to crush Nobukatsu and Ieyasu, but things did not quite work out that way. A series of skirmishes and one larger engagement at Nakakute mostly favored Ieyasu. In every case, he either won outright or succeeded in withdrawing with his army intact while inflicting serious casualties. However, not everyone was sanguine about his prospects for long-term success, especially not Oda Nobukatsu. Nobukatsu apparently got cold feet and was convinced that Hideyoshi would win eventually no matter what. Eventually, he agreed to a separate peace with Hideyoshi, thus depriving Ieyasu of the cause for which he was nominally fighting. Nobukatsu would be forced into a Buddhist monastery to keep him out of the way. We'll see him again next week, though, and apparently by that point he will have learned his lesson. The second time he gets an opportunity to betray Tokugawa Ieyasu's trust, he does not take it. Now, suddenly, things were looking kind of grim. Other lords who had been wavering in Ieyasu's favor began backing away, and it seemed only a matter of time before, clever tactics or no, Hideyoshi would simply steamroll Ieyasu into the ground. Hideyoshi, however, was a clever man and would not lose one valuable asset over a minor disagreement. Besides, while crushing Ieyasu was feasible, it would be expensive, and the losses of men and material could leave Hideyoshi vulnerable to his other rivals. So, instead of crushing Ieyasu, he reached out to him and offered him a pardon and a truce. Ieyasu, knowing he was beaten, took it. Now, at this point, one could be forgiven for thinking that this would be it for the career of Tokugawa Ieyasu. 
He had made his bid for power, and unlike Ashikaga Takauji and Minamoto no Yoritomo, he had lost, and he would never be allowed enough power or influence to try again. At least, that's what it looked like. But Ieyasu was nothing if not patient. He could afford to wait, and that's exactly what he did. One of the more common lines attributed to Ieyasu is, Let thy step be slow and steady, that thou stumble not. Certainly good advice, and in this case, Ieyasu would take it. He would, from this point on, step slowly and steadily to rebuild his power base in preparation for his next shot. And as we'll see next week, 16 years later, he would get his chance. That's all for this week. For more on this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week for The Slow and Steady Step, Part 2.